Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. One of the most important chapters in Scripture, and it's prompted by something we can all relate with. Abram lacked assurance. He struggled with doubt. He struggled with wavering faith. Does anybody relate with that? And that's what prompts God to renew his covenant with Abram. He's already made promises to Abram in chapter 12 when he was 75 years old. Now maybe as many as 15 years later. He's 90-ish. And there's need for assurance. Abram needs assurance. Remember, Abram was told by God that he would have a son. God told Abram also that he would make him into a great nation. God told Abram that he would give him a land for his numerous offspring. And now here is Abram at this old age. He had just defeated the four warlord kings of the north by the hand of God. Melchizedek, that mysterious Christ figure, confirms and authenticates that Abram is God's chosen servant, that all these promises are true. But here's Abram, almost 90 years old, and you can appreciate this. Even though he's been promised all this, Everything outwardly says there's no way this is going to happen. Here he is, 90. He doesn't have a son yet, and he doesn't even have a patch of land to call his own. Abram believed God, but he's struggling with his faith. This brings us to truly one of the great moments in salvation history, Genesis 15. Here as I read God's holy word, verses 1 through 15 of this 15th chapter of Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years." But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. 
And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, most of us can relate with the struggles of faith. It is not uncommon even for true Christians to waver and falter. The circumstances that we find ourselves in often work to choke out our belief. O Lord, we are weak and need for you to refresh and renew our faith. O Lord, we confess to focusing too much on our situation and not enough on your sure hand and definite promises. Lord, as we focus on the ratification of your covenant with Abram, please give us here a sense of security that we can have through your covenant commitment to us through Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. Who among us has not struggled with assurance? I remember as a Late into my teenage years, after a few years after understanding the gospel and believing that I trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I was still between different churches, going to the church I grew up in. And I remember talking several times to priests there and even a nun there, two priests and one nun, asking them why it was that I still did not know for sure I was saved, that I was definitely right with God, that if I died at that moment, I would be in eternity with Him. And all three of them had had a basic variation of the same answer. Assurance is not something you can have. It's one of the biggest errors in the history of the church they all told me in so many words. It's one of the worst things the Protestants teach, this idea that you can be sure that you are right with God. This leads to people doing whatever they want. There's nowhere in the Bible that this is taught. This is something that was made up. And I heard that over and over. And it wasn't until I heard in an exposition of a passage in Romans that led me to to the statement that's said here by Moses concerning Abram. And then with some more study going back to Genesis and seeing this very passage being the basis for the fullness of the gospel message. It's the very foundation for the person of Jesus' coming. Um, Yes, it's not that it's the first time he's noted. You know in Genesis 3, It was promised that a seed would come from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. We've been waiting for that even as we've walked through the passage. Of course, he covenants to Noah, too, out of his great grace to preserve the seed through Noah. So it's not like we don't have hints that God's doing this work. But then in Genesis 12, he speaks to Abram with clarity about the specifics of his promises of grace. And he gives certainty to what he'll do. Yet, here we have Abram in Genesis 15, after all sorts of episodes in his life, up and down, up and down, struggling yet with assurance. So Genesis 15 works to give us that assurance we need, and it establishes it going forward, picturing the finality of the full ratification of the covenant that would come in the years that would follow. In our confession of faith, it addresses this real issue for Christians 
struggling with their faith. In fact, I encourage you, if you struggle with your faith, if you waver, that does not mean you're not a believer. It doesn't mean you don't have true saving faith. We only need a little faith to lay hold of Christ. He is the giant Savior. He's the one who is the basis for our salvation. We're not saved because we have faith. Faith is just the instrument that ties us to Christ. Even if it's a weak faith, he's strong. In fact, I would say to you, if you struggle with that and think, oh, maybe I'm not a believer and you're struggling with, that's, that's probably a sign you do have faith and you're struggling in it and you need God's refreshment and renewal. And there's various reasons as to why we might struggle. And our confession of faith does a good job capturing this. Listen to what is said. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in many ways shaken, diminished, intermitted. And then it lists out some reasons that might be causing this for us to think about. As by negligence of preserving of it. In other words, making sure that you're bolstered in the gospel itself and what it declares and what it means and what it calls us to. It could be by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience. We get off the rails into a sin that we get trapped in. We're believers, but we love the sin more than God at that moment, and we're going after that, and, and we kind of numb ourselves to what the gospel message is and what it means. That could be one of the reasons we lose assurance. It grieves the spirit. It could be by some sudden or vehement temptation, maybe something no fault of your own, a crisis comes into your life, and you're stretched because of this, and you might lose some assurance. Is God, does God love me? Is he taking care of me? It could be by God's discipline where he withdraws the light of his countenance. He allows us to have a sense of what it's like apart from him. We see this in Abram's experience. He's a darkness that comes. His momentary, a momentary sense of terror about his place before God and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. But the beauty of what the Bible teaches and the confession captures, and we'll see in this verse, in these verses, it says in the concluding part of that 18th chapter, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which in the meantime they're supported unto utter despair. In other words, the Lord even has you here with your doubts and your wavering, that's okay. He has you here so you don't fall into utter despair, and he has you here again to hear the gospel. Because this is the pattern we see. He gives the promise of the gospel. We're prompted to belief because of his work in us. And then he doesn't stop there. He then gives us a sign or he confirms or makes an oath to show that this work is finished for us. And then we are revived. Our assurance is in some way restored. This is what Abram is going through at this stage of his life near 90 we don't know for sure how old he is. Chapter 12, when he first received the promise, he was 75. In chapter 17, when, he's about, when they're about ready to have a child, he's 99. So it's somewhere in between there. Some years have passed. So he's struggling. He's struggling with these promises. And then we have the passage before us. Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament scholar, said, this chapter is the foundational covenant of the Old Testament. It's the most important covenant before we come to the new covenant in Christ. Robert Rayburn helps us here too. He says, if anyone would understand the message of the Bible, he or she needs to begin here. So if you're new to Bible study, uh, Genesis 15 is a great starting place for you to get the foundation. It's a seminal passage for what unfolds in the rest of God's salvation history, of which you're part if you're in Christ. Rayburn says, the rest of biblical history will record the fortunes of this covenant that God made with Abram. That is, the history of salvation is the history of this covenant. 
All that follows is simply the unfolding, the working out, the elaborating, and the fulfilling of this covenant God made with Abram. Palmer Robertson said it well, by far the most significant passage in the patriarchal narrative. That's the narrative to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The most significant passage in this narrative, dealing specifically with the covenant concept, is the intriguing description of a formal inauguration, the ceremony we witnessed that's foreign to us, but it wouldn't have been to this audience. This formal inauguration of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. And here's what I encourage you with, old students of the Bible and new students of the Bible. As you come to understand what unfolds in Genesis 12, now in Genesis 15, it'll set the stage for your understanding about what else happens going forward. And eventually it culminates in the person of Christ and his salvation that the nations benefit from. This is why the promise was for a son, but for an offspring and for the nations to be blessed in a land to occupy it, which, of course, Abram understood in the ultimate sense wasn't just that land. It was the new heavens and the new earth. It was the heavenly country. When we see this foundation in Genesis, you'll start to understand much more of the New Testament. The New Testament, by the way, consistently refers to what is promised to Abram for the foundation of Jesus' coming. You remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he discovers that his son will be part of making the way clear for Messiah to come. Notice what this aged priest says upon knowledge of Christ's arrival. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Remember, this is now 2,000 years after the Abrahamic covenant was given. Zechariah, it says of him, or he says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. So he's recognizing Jesus is coming, it's the fulfillment of the holy covenant. Which covenant? Verse 73 of Luke 1. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant is the foundation for Christ's coming. After Mary is visited by the angel and she is told that she would bear Jesus a Savior, here's Mary a teenage, just basically a young teen, and she's describing what she recognizes to be true about Christ and where, it come, where he comes from. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. What remembrance? Of what mercy? as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The point is, the Abrahamic covenant is the basic basis for the salvation plan, the salvation unfolding that is depicted throughout the rest of the Bible. This is how you'll understand it better. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees who doubted him. They said, you don't know anything about anything as it relates to salvation. You, you don't know our history. And he was, they were speaking in this disrespectful manner to Christ. And they said in John 8, are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be, they say to Jesus. Jesus answered, I will glorify myself. My glory is nothing. It is my, it is my father. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. 
he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's one of the most impactful statements in the New Testament tying himself to the covenant made that we are reading of now in Genesis 15. And here's the fundamental personal bottom line. Abram lacked faith. He wanted to know that God would keep his promises. And so God responds by restating his promise and then making a solemn oath, cutting a covenant, as it says literally. Palmer Robertson, who I referred to earlier, makes this propositional statement that I have noted for you. The Almighty chooses to commit himself to the fulfillment of promises spoken to Abraham. By this divine commitment, Abraham's doubts are to be expelled. God has solemnly promised, and he has sealed that promise with an oath. And that's what we'll see unfold in the passage before us. Notice the pattern. God makes a promise, to Abraham, a saving promise, a gospel promise. Abram believes God and believes his promise. Then God assures Abram further of this promise by sealing it with an oath, with a ritual, with a ceremony. If you take it to today, just for a moment, skipping ahead to application, think of this for a moment, what happens every Lord's Day? God makes his gospel proclamation known through his word. It's proclaimed to you. We're reminded again that we're forgiven through Christ in his sacrifice. He promises this gospel to you. You, in return, with the Holy Spirit working, and you believe it again. You believe it afresh. Your faith is built. You're assured once again. And it doesn't stop there. Then God assures us over and over and over again by his word and his sacrament. Let's go to the passage and see how this unfolds. The first five verses you will notice there is a renewal of the promise that God has made to Abram already. Uh, This promise of the gospel, the gospel itself made again. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After what things? Well, we've just seen God rescue Abram from Egypt and Sarai. Then we see Abram, some years later, valiantly going after the northern kings who had taken his nephew hostage. He rescues them. He sends Melchizedek to confirm Abram is God's chosen one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Literally, I am your deliverer. That's the same word for deliverer that Melchizedek used earlier in the other chapter. I am your deliverer. And more literally than you, your reward shall be very great. I am your reward. Some of your versions, I am your exceeding and great reward. I am your shield. So if those northern kings decide to come back, which they might, I am your deliverer. Remember, I am your deliverer. And furthermore, it expands from here. God renews his covenant commitment to him by describing himself this way. Now, I want you to notice something as the gospel promise goes forward again. What does Abram do? How does he respond? And this should give us encouragement as believers that you have before your father um, access to him with honesty and passionate outcry. It's done with reverence and belief. Please notice that. He's not doubting God is God. He is not even falling into unbelief. Now, his belief is struggling and notice the wording. It tells us everything we need to, know, need to know about what Abram thinks of God. But Abram said, it's an adversative. God made this promise, and now he confronts God and says, O Lord God. Now, the term here is not just a generic name for God. It's, O Lord Yahweh, covenant God, the one who's bound himself to me. You, God, I, re- I respect you because I'm using this title for you. 
O Lord God, with great respect and reverence, what will you give me? I continue childless. I'm almost 90 and I have no children. You prom- keep promising children. Keep promising children and I have none. Right now, a Syrian in my house will become my heir. Verse 3. Abram goes on. He cries out to God with passion. Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. You could see him pouring himself out, and he invites his children to pour themselves out to him. It's with reverence and belief he does so. He doesn't understand, and that's understandable. We wouldn't either. He's 90, doesn't have any children, and doesn't even have a plot of land that's his own yet. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. He addresses God with his covenant name. It's really a statement of belief that God could do something. He just doesn't understand what God is doing. And God speaks to Abram in verse 4 and verse 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. There's nine times where the Lord speaks to Abram like this, and this is the fifth time. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He confirms that his, true prom- his promise is true. There was no mistake. He didn't mean it figuratively. You will have a son, and it won't be Eleazar. Verse 5, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and the number of stars. Now, if you live anywhere in the country, you can appreciate more than suburban and city folk can. We have all this ambient light. It takes away from the sky. But if you're out in the dark, dark, it's like a dust of stars that you can't even begin to count. Even with all our technology and all of our, our spacecrafts that go out with uh, the ability to see and telescope into space, we still can't come to the end of counting them all. And it says in verse 5, if you are able, Abram, to number the stars, then that's how many of your offspring will be. He's trying to depict for Abram how great this will be, yet it doesn't, it doesn't stand up to his personal experience. He needs his faith built, and God promises him afresh that this is true. Abram demonstrates the up and down nature of living a life of faith. All of us can appreciate this. doesn't mean you're not a Christian because you struggle and you waver at times. He believed God initially when Yahweh called him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. He believed God again when Yahweh rescued he and Sarai from Egypt. He believed God when he went after his nephew Lot in great risk and with great valor, and God was with him. And now pouring out his honesty before God, God responds by restating his commitment to to him, that he's going to honor his promises. And Abram once again believes. His faith is upheld. It's bolstered. Look at verse 6. Once again, Abram trusts in God's promise. He accepts the word of the Lord. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord. He trusted in the Lord's promise. He relied upon the declaration of God. He rested in the promises of Yahweh. He believed the Lord, and because he believed in the Lord, the Lord who's capable of upholding his promises, who would fulfill his promises. Faith in that Lord, the Lord himself, it was counted to him as righteousness. Before the Lord, he was justified. He was right with God because he believed in God's promise. What was his promise? Ultimately, to send a son. Ultimately, the person of Christ the promise to provide for Abram, covering for his sins, for the taking away of his sins. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice it doesn't say 
he was made righteous. That's not what it says. He was counted as righteous. It would be another righteousness that would be credited to him. It's not his righteousness or your righteousness that ever makes you acceptable to God. It's faith in God's righteousness or provision of righteousness through Christ that counts you as right with him. The very basic level we have the teaching of our being right with God through faith in Christ. It's the gospel being preached to Abram. He doesn't say, Abram, I'm going to lay out for you what you got to now do to get this stuff. No, he said, I will do this. I'm going to do this. But Lord, I, I, I'm old. I, can't. I will do this, Abram. I promise I will do this. And Abram believed. And it was credited to his account as righteousness. You can see the basis for the Apostle Paul's explanation about what makes us right with God. We're made right with God through faith in God's promise of salvation through Christ. It was not Abram's obedience. Please notice this. Now, don't get this wrong. It's not that he's not called to obedience because the one that God justifies, he also sanctifies. So there's the expectation that the one who's truly saved will then manifest fruit from God too. But at this point, we're talking at the initial level. And most of our assurance is because we lack we lack good works, and we try to muster them up ourselves, and we forget where they come from, and then we get into this mire of, it's my works. Well, my works are rags, and now I don't feel saved anymore. But we have to go back to the beginning again. Where does this salvation come from? It was not Abram's obedience that gave him standing before God. It was Abram's belief in God's promises that gave him standing before God. It was not Abram's moral uprightness that gave him a right status before God. It's Abram's trust in the word of Yahweh that made him right before God. Trust in the one who gives him this access. It was not Abram's following of God's rules that made him a Christian, so to speak. It was Abram's dependence on God's word of the gospel in the person of Christ ultimately. Even if he didn't know those specifics, he trusted that God would provide this. It was not Abram's good works that justified him with God. It was Abram's belief in the gospel of God. And God's promise that belief was the tool that God used to unite Abram to the one who was and is righteous. Abram could never boast about his deserving God's favor ever in his life. It was God's promise to provide Abram salvation. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul capitalizes on or brings to the fore in Romans 4. In Romans 4, the Apostle said, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? What did he gain? Our forefather, according to his flesh, according to his ability to do things. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul quotes from from Genesis. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, the human dilemma that never ends, that always confronts us, is that we somehow think we earn our salvation or we keep our salvation by continuing to earn. Abram is the model for how works cannot save us. You notice he has not been called into works yet. The gospel has been proclaimed to him. He believes the message. We are saved by God's grace through faith 
and his promise in Christ. In the book of Galatians, a book that Paul wrote actually earlier than the Romans, he's speaking to people that were primarily Jewish converts, or at least there were a lot of Jewish converts in their midst. And they kept bringing to the church this idea that you had to do some other things besides just believe on Christ. I'm certainly had to follow through some of the Jewish rituals and such. Yes, believe in Christ, but you got to do this, this, and this too. So, seeing what was happening in the Galatian church, Paul pulls no punches. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He calls it a bewitching when you add to the gospel. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You saw him finish his work on the cross. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit of works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, he says, to those who think they could add to their salvation by works or secure themselves by works? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So you came to Christ by the spirit, but now you're working to keep yourself saved? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He quotes from Genesis. But here are the key words in Galatians that tie this all together. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. Now you know how the number can multiply. Those who trust in Christ are the sons and daughters of Abraham. In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Wait a minute, when when is the gospel preached to Abraham? When when did someone get a booklet out and say, these are the four spiritual laws? When did that come up? When was was there an altar call? Well, listen to what it says. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant is the preaching of the gospel. And Abram did nothing to earn that salvation or that favor, that covenantal grace shown to him. So then, Paul writes in Galatians 3, those who are of faith, of trust in this message, trust in Christ, are blessed among with Abraham, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Rob Rayburn, who I quoted earlier, I'll, I'll quote him again. This is the Christian faith, he says, the divine initiative to call sinful human beings into fellowship with God himself. And this is the Christian life, trusting the promise of God through the long wait before they are fulfilled in our lives and in the life of the world to come. Waiting is such a, a big part of the Christian experience. We see it with Abram, and we know it's true in our own lives. I want you to look at the last portion of verses that describe for us God giving a sign, a visible oath, a tangible ritual that he performs to assure Abram of his promise. He assures, he gives assurance now. Look at verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur. This would be a typical way to begin an ancient covenant or treaty by declaring who he is. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. Now, Abram interrupts a bit again, wrestling again with God. O Lord, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, he just believed in the gospel message that he would have a son and the son would lead to Christ. But now this land promise has come to fore again, and he brings up, how will I know I'll have this land to possess it? How can I be sure? 
God is going to give him a sign of his commitment, a covenant he will cut with him. That's the literal rendering of the word covenant here. And it has to do with what the animal, what has to happen to the sacrifices. Waiting upon the Lord now, struggling with the wait. God making his promise known. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. In antiquity, this is how covenantal ceremonies were done, with different animals usually, not these animals. But we have suzerain treaties that we can see this unfold this way. So Abram would know what he's asking him to do. He's going to make a covenant with me. So he goes and gets these animals. They're not newborn animals. They're animals that he would have had to keep for three years each. So they're mature animals at this point. Um, This involves personal care for them. It involves a brutal process of having to sacrifice them and set them up just the way he says. You know, our modern contracts that would be most comparable is when you have a notary come and you fill out a contract to buy a house or, or fill out your will. Uh, that's, just, that's so slight compared to what they did in antiquity. You can see the, the, the vivid imagery of life and death, the actual life and death that occurs for these animals so as to depict the seriousness of what's going to happen. Uh, it's not like the e-documents we sign anymore where you just wonder if it actually counts when you scrawl your name across there. That's not how the covenant works then. In antiquity, they were much more serious in this, and the symbolism is very clear. Look what it says. Bring these animals... And he brought all of these, cut them in half, so this is a bloody situation, and laid half over against the other, across from each other, and there would have been, if you picture the middle aisle here with a little indentation in the ground, and one half of each of the animals put in each side, um, their blood would have seeped into the little ditch between them, and then you would, as a sign of commitment with the person you're making the covenant with, two of you would walk through it, get the blood on your feet, and walk out and look to one another and say, we have just made covenant with each other. And if I don't fulfill my part, may it happen to me what has happened to these animals that I be rendered in two. And the other person says the same thing by walking through. You're vividly describing with tangible means what is going to happen if you break covenant. It's a vivid picture. Abram would have known exactly what he was setting up, as weird as it is for us. So he does what he's told. He sets it up. Now look at verse 12. And the sun was going down. So he's got all this time, and it says back in verse 11, while he's waiting for these, for God to continue with the covenant, he has to fend off vultures that are starting to come down to eat the carcasses. Just the just the amount of energy that Abram has to exert to lay out this covenant ceremony. But then in verse 12, the sun starts going down now. A deep sleep falls on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fall upon him. This is the dark night of the soul, this moment where you feel the dread of being in the presence of God with no means to stand in his presence. You've got no right to stand in his presence. He knows that this covenant will call for him, at least a covenant will call for him, to go through it with God. He knows he's not God's equal. How could he ever keep up? He's just overwhelmed with the inability to keep covenant with God. He has no hope to meet this standard. He can't stand with God like this, and it falls upon him. He has this momentary understanding of the chasm between the righteousness of God and his righteousness. But then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. He's starting to describe what the future will look like for his offspring. He'll fulfill the promise, but there's some things that will happen. And then God goes on, 
they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is the description of the Jews in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, that first audience reading Genesis would have just experienced this, but they knew of the prophecies over the years. Then look at verse 15. Abram, still in this deep sleep as this is developing. As for you, you, Abram, will go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. I mean, he's already 90. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He has something of judgment for the people in Canaan, so the time wasn't quite right for them yet. In God's providence, he's working out this according to his will. But this is where one of the most profound actions of God in the whole of the Bible happened. Cannot be understated what we read in verse 17. Because what should have happened is that Abram is roused and he must now walk through with God and keep covenant with God and he must do what he should do. But he can't do this. And so verse 17 is subtle, but don't take it subtly. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Abram doesn't pass between the pieces. Only God. In fact, we know this is a picture of God because fire and smoke represent God's presence. God spoke to Moses in the form of a burning bush. God descended upon Mount Sinai when giving the law because the Lord descended upon, upon it like fire. It says later in the Old Testament that God is a consuming fire, and the author of Hebrews says the same thing. So God himself takes the covenant on himself unilaterally, not based on whether Abram can keep it or not. And he walks through and declares that it is on him to keep these promises. Abram can't keep these promises, but God can for him. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God makes himself responsible for your salvation. It's all up to him. You've got no hope. Your sin is too great. Mine is too great. But his grace is greater, and he walks through it on your behalf so you can be assured of your salvation. Whenever we suffer from doubts, whenever we struggle to believe, we can hearken back that in this covenant, God passed through these pieces for us. It's interesting, some years ago, in a Q&A session, someone asked R.C. Sproul what his favorite verse in the Bible is. Now, you would imagine Sproul would say one of the justification by faith passages, right? He said, Genesis 15, 17. That was his life verse, as he said. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites. And he's talking of all the members of, who lived in Canaan at that time. That land would all be his offspring. But of course, much greater than this would be the final realization of the great heavenly Canaan that would come. I hope you see as we've walked through this passage that can be somewhat foreign to our thinking because of the context. But I hope we can see that Genesis 15, this Abrahamic covenant, this sets the stage for us understanding what happens in the rest of Scripture. Eventually, it culminates 
with the person of Christ. And brothers and sisters, here is the reality. Every one of us is in constant need of regular renewal. Just like we waver like we do, we need renewal like we do. I don't mean to be saved over and over again. Abram was saved, if you want to use that language, by Genesis 15. But he wavered and he struggled just like we do. And so when we come into his presence and we ask God, we wrestle with God by prayer, telling him our insecurity, our lack of assurance. Lord, help, I believe, but help my unbelief. The Lord responds by giving us his promise of the gospel afresh. And we believe that gospel when he says it. His spirit works in us. We hear the gospel and know it's true. Yes, Jesus did this for us. And then he doesn't leave it there. He gives us means to grow us further by his word and sacrament to build us up by tangible means to assure us of what has been accomplished, what has been finished. It isn't a picture of what we need to do. It's a picture of what he has done. God makes a gospel promise that our sins are forgiven through Christ. We believe in God's promise through Christ. God assures us over and over and over again by the word of sacrament, the word and sacrament, until we'll no longer need faith because we'll have it by sight in his presence. It was said by Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who was a 16th century counter-Reformation Roman Catholic priest. He said the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. He's wrong. The greatest of all heresies is to obscure the finished work of Christ done for you. And there's nothing you could have done to attribute it to yourself. That's the gospel. That's the greatest heresy, is to obscure the pure grace of God's gospel through Christ. Do you ever lack assurance of faith? When you come to worship with God's people, the pattern remains. God states his promises to you again, and you believe. You know it's true. The Spirit testifies to your spirit that you are a son or a daughter of God. Yes, you struggle with your sin. You struggle with some temptation that's probably come, some, some trial in your life, the world pressing upon you. But you hear the gospel again and you know that's your hope. And then he doesn't leave us there. We close in prayer in a little bit and we're going to hear the words of institution about this table that we will partake of. A tangible means to remind us of a finished reality. What is ours? Who is ours in Christ? And we're refreshed, and we are enabled again to believe, to be assured. The Confession of Faith says, Well, being enabled by the Holy Spirit to know the things which are freely given to us from God, he may without extraordinary revelation, doesn't need something miraculous, but rather by the right use of ordinary means, we may attain that assurance thereunto. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are moved to a deeper faith by the vision that you gave Abram. Your divine commitment to give Abram a seed who would become the Messiah assures our faith. O Lord, we believe, but please help our unbelief through this exposure to the truth of the gospel of grace, your word. In Jesus' name, amen.